TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. What does the future hold for St. Louis and how do we get there? This is Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Welcome into our innovation conversation here in St. Louis. Michael and Travis with you. And we're going to hit the spectrum of the different ways that St. Louisans are innovating this week. Yeah, we're going to talk about, of course, ag, biotech, and geospatial because those are pretty strong here in St. Louis. We're also going to talk a little bit about new sources of capital for early stage companies. And I think you'll want to check that one out. Yeah, and especially geospatial and ag tech, what is the crossover? What connections do they have? Just another example of how one industry that's seemingly unrelated on the surface can can totally have intersections with others. And when on the capital side, you know, we talk about venture capital funds and accelerators uh, several times on this show. But we also know that there are some challenges in the region with regard to racial equity and social justice. And the group at WePower has put a program together to start tackling both of those things. To elevate entrepreneurs, right? That's right. And then we're going to finish up the show with Wellbeing Brewing. We've talked with them before about their focus on non-alcoholic beers. And some of them are geared toward after-workout drinks. What? We'll check in with Jeff uh, Stevens from Wellbeing Brewing and find out what the latest is with them. And by the way, they are expanding their manufacturing capacity, so people are thirsty for it. So you can actually build a six-pack while drinking a six-pack without worrying about a beer belly, right? <laughs> <laughs> Always drawing those connections, Travis. Well, we have a lot more connections to draw. Stick around. We have more Nothing Impossible right after this. The following program has been pre-recorded. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Well, we talk a lot in St. Louis about our industry clusters, those areas that we're just really good at. And a couple of them are agriculture technology and geospatial technology. And is there an opportunity for those to maybe overlap a bit more? Definitely. There is an upcoming speaker series where they'll examine that very topic at our innovation district that is just for plant science and agriculture technology. And joining us is Stephanie Reganen, who is the executive director of innovation partnerships for the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here. So tell us about the Geo Innovation National Speaker Series. Yes, so this is a collaboration between Cortex and T-Rex and the GeoFutures organization where they bring in speakers of a national or global level to talk about the importance in a really increasingly growing and impactful geospatial industry. I think what's interesting about it, too, is that they seek to 
have conversations like the upcoming one about places where geospatial intersects with other powerful industries and how it can kind of be a one plus one equals three for everyone. So, Stephanie, to help our listeners out, and maybe me as well, I'll put it on to the listeners, but I, I probably need my own education. What are some ways that geospatial and agriculture overlap? I would imagine it has to do with mapping uh, crops and, and that type of thing. Are there, are there specific examples you can share? Yes, absolutely. So mapping is clearly um, something that's very important, and that's been going on for a while Um, Another space is what we call precision agriculture, where there are all kinds of data points being gathered and given to farmers so that farmers can make the very best and most informed decisions on their property and on their farms. So an example would be understanding if there are pests or pathogens or a need for water um, for specific crops in specific places. That helps farmers make decisions um, that can be not only uh, financially beneficial, right, so that you're not putting inputs or pesticides or anything like that in places they don't belong um, or that are not needed, uh, but it also helps us further sustainability goals and helps farmers um, just really make the, the best use out of every inch of their ground. And we've had a lot of uh, companies in St. Louis. One, one of the biggest that's emerged, Travis and I just did an interview with the CEO, uh, Matt Crisp of Benson Hill, about their crop OS technology and the way that they're doing this two-way uh, real-time feedback program with farmers. And can you, can you talk a little bit more about the breadth of solutions that are being worked on at the Danforth Center and at 39 North? Absolutely. So, yes, I'm I'm thrilled that you all talked to Benson Hill. You know, they are doing some really interesting things, combining crop research with this AI technology. um, And I think there'll be more of that in the future. Some things we're doing at the center, um, there are many scientists actually working on this space. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, again, for research purposes, maybe not commercial purposes, but really try to uh, gather data out in the field that we can bring in-house and continue to research um, and inform our decisions for our research projects. Um, in 39 North, there are some companies that are also focused on this intersection. Acre Technology would be one of those techn- those uh, companies, but there are others. Acre is seeking to give the farmer information about the plants below and above the canopy, you know, meaning where the leaves kind of spread out. Um, they're able to gather that kind of information and really allow the farmer to understand what's going on in plants where they can see maybe what's going on and in other places where they can't. So it's very valuable information for these growers. Well, that sure beats the old farmer's almanac where you would just look up and see this happened last year. So I'm assuming it's going to happen this year. This happened with the crops last year. So I assume it's going to happen this year. It is much more precise than it's probably ever been. That's right. And the thing is, historical data is obviously still also very important, right? And that's the importance of being able to collect this data and look at it over time. At the same time, we know that climate change is happening today, right here, right now. So these weather patterns and the ability to predict the climate, it it is getting a little bit more challenging. So it's important to have that real-time data. And as uh, the need for food grows around the world as well. Absolutely. If we are going to meet those uh, very audacious goals to feed everyone and to do so with nutritious and, uh, you know, a safe food supply, we have to be able to get every, um, every acre more productive and having good data in the, in the hands of all farmers, right? Not just large scale farmers, but all farmers of all crops uh, need to have and be operating with good data. Well, Stephanie, talk to us a little bit about um, 
the way that these partnerships have formed and what this will look like uh, at the event. You mentioned Cortex is involved, uh, T-Rex, Geofutures, of course, the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. How important is that, that level of collaboration within the region? Well, I will say this, um, you know, I've lived in St. Louis for uh, about 16, 17 years. I've always felt that the bioscience and ag tech story that we have is, is one of the best. And so to see um, the highlight of this intersection of ag tech and geospatial, not only called out in the geofutures report that was released a little over a year ago, but also in the St. Louis 2030 job plan as you know, something we've done right in the past, meaning biosciences and ag tech, but a reason to believe in our future in this geospatial space, to know that that intersection comes right through St. Louis is, is really a cool thing to see as someone who lives there, is raising my family there. But to your point, Travis, you know, these organizations and these conveners in St. Louis have recognized this, and we are working very hard together to bring together the strengths of all of the different innovation districts the strengths of all of our research institutions and our universities and our corporate partners to bring that to bear to really double down on this intersection. And, you know, it's really a beautiful thing when you see all those kinds of organizations coming together and rowing in the same direction. We're talking with Stephanie Reganen, who's the executive director of Innovation Partnerships for the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. And we, we like to ask about how, you know, Geofutures is just emerging uh, and this focus on geospatial. But the focus on plant science and ag tech is well established in St. Louis from Danforth to BioSTL and this, you know, cohesive district in Creve-Core. And, and now the efforts to build something similar for geospatial just north of downtown St. Louis and that innovation district. And so I'm curious what you think the geo field can learn from the ag field and how it's established an industry cluster in St. Louis. Well, I think, you know, it's been, um, again, established what we did right in biosciences. This isn't to say that we did everything right. And there are some learnings. And I think one of the biggest ones is for us to recognize what we have existing uh, between the corporate partners and the research institutions um, and the startup community and some of these accelerators, but also identify where the gaps are, understand, you know, where we might still have needs and expertise and, you know, recognize that and try to bring those voices to the table. And so um, there is kind of a roadmap of what we did in the past in biosciences. I think geospatial has, you know, a a decent plan to kind of learn from, but it's a different um, time that we're living in and working in uh, for geospatial to be really growing in this way. And so, you know, I think, uh, I just think the future is bright for geospatial and specifically geospatial in St. Louis. Well, Stephanie, you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation that, and we know that the Donald Danforth Center, at least at one point, and probably still is the the largest concentration of plant science PhDs and researchers anywhere in the world. How much of that research is moving toward translation and commercialization? Are we going to see additional Benson Hills coming out of the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center? And can a partnership or collaboration in geospatial help accelerate some of that? Oh, goodness, Travis, now you're speaking my language. So this is the space that I operate in at the center, the innovation space. And what makes the Danforth Plant Science Center truly unique as a uh, research institution is really the third vision point that we have to make St. Louis and our region 
you know, this epicenter of plant science, and I would also add ag tech. And that is where the rubber meets the road. That is where we seek to bring the science that we do at the center out into the marketplace. And whether or not that is um, inspiring our own scientists to become entrepreneurs or making sure that our scientists and their research projects are partnered with with um, excellent founders and entrepreneurs externally, whatever that may look like, that is what we're seeking to do. And I tell people all the time, you know, Benson Hill started out in a closet in the Danforth Plant Science Center, and now they have a whole building out back on our campus in Bridge Park. That is exactly what we're seeking to do. And I think um, to your point about geospatial and, you know, could that kind of help this along when I think about the recognition we're seeing across our region of the possibilities here, right, the possibilities in geospatial, knowing, again, layering on, you know, this, this strength that we have in bioscience and plant science, I think our region as a whole is understanding that with investment and intentionality, we could absolutely make this the next big thing for St. Louis. Well, speaking of intentionality, if people intend to participate in the event that's coming up, give us some more details about that event and how uh, how folks can, can get involved and participate. Yeah, so the Geo Innovation Speaker Series, you can register online. Um, it is a free event to attend. I would, uh, you know, here's the thing. I think people will learn something. They'll learn something that they didn't know, and they'll probably learn something that they didn't know uh, not just about the two industry, the two industries coming together as an intersection, but about, you know, things happening in St. Louis and where those opportunities are. And the dates on that again? The Geo Innovation Series is, is ongoing. Yes. It's like a, oh, it a monthly okay, or bi-monthly series. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. That's great to, always great to chat with you. And it, it is, it's really interesting to continue to hear how these these silos are starting to meld together. And it seems like that's where a lot more new innovation is coming from. So good luck to you and everybody out at the Danforth Center. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, guys. All right, stick around. We'll be back with more Nothing Impossible right after this. Now back to Nothing Impossible on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. All right, welcome back to Nothing Impossible. Travis Sheridan, Michael Calhoun. And, you know, on this show, we, I think we talked about well, of course, we talk about innovation, but we talk about the different accelerator programs, incubators, venture capital funds uh, that are available across the region. And one of them that we've highlighted in the past, but we haven't really caught up with recently, is is WePower. And uh, we're we're joined today by Yoni Bloomberg from WePower. And Yoni, thanks so much for joining us. We're gonna I want to talk about two different things. We're gonna talk about the 1.5 million dollar investment fund that was recently announced. But to set the stage, can you give our listeners a bit of background on what WePower is? For sure. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Um, so WePower is an organization focused on uh, activating community power to transform systems, particularly education and economic systems, towards uh, greater equity and justice for all. We do that through a number of approaches, both um, like hands-on community organizing for policy and structural change, as well as work with Black and Latinx entrepreneurs to um, accelerate the growth of their businesses and um, create more living wage jobs and, and generate and build community-owned wealth. WePower's been around probably about four years now, three or four years? Yeah, next spring will be our, our fourth year. We're, we're about three and a half years old at this point. Great. Great. Well, like I mentioned in the opening, we had uh, just some news recently coming out of WePower about the uh, 
the launch of Elevate Elevar Capital, and it's a $1.5 million investment fund. Tell us a little bit about that. It, I understand that it's really going to go to uh, invest in, toward the financial growth of Latin, Latinx-owned companies, but tell us about the fund itself and maybe how it's structured and how people participate. Yeah. So we've been working on the design of the fund on and off for about two years now. Um, and the fund is really in response to several things, but at the highest level, it's a response to both like massive unmet need and massive opportunity. Um, we know looking at national statistics and also locally that there are real um, large disparities in access to capital for black and Latinx entrepreneurs in particular. Um, and um, that comes both at the level of access and then also terms. Like we, we've seen that when black entrepreneurs are successful in borrowing from banks, um, or, or rather are like allowed to borrow from banks and, and extended lines of like offers of credit, it often comes um, for smaller amounts at higher rates um, and generally like with worse terms. And so um, at a high level, that's both an injustice and, and a disparity that needs to be addressed, but it's also a major opportunity for the region um, because right now we're not investing in black and Latinx entrepreneurs nearly enough. Um, and were we to do that, we would see much greater economic growth and, and shared prosperity in our region. So that's kind of the starting point of like why we explored launching a fund and raising like doing this work in the first place. Um, and then when we got into the research and design phase of it, we started to also realize like the types of capital that are available um, are somewhat limited um, and, and great for certain conditions, but, but don't meet a lot of needs um, for, for entre uh, other needs of entrepreneurs. So um, if you have well-established credit and collateral, um, you're, you may well be able to qualify for credit and investment at a relatively low cost from a bank. Um, or if you have a, a really fast-growing tech company or, or some other kind of company that might be the next like Facebook or, or whatnot, um, you might be a great fit for venture capital. But 99% of businesses kind of aren't a fit for venture capital, and many of them don't have the collateral or credit scores to qualify um, for, for investments, particularly like below 250000 or smaller levels from banks. Um, there's some great organizations that do um, lend in that space, like Justine Peterson locally, but um, there's still a lot of unmet needs for entrepreneurs, particularly who, who don't have um, collateral or high credit score um, or just aren't interested in, in a traditional loan. Um, and so we, we heard about this thing called revenue-based investing and, and um, talked with a bunch of Black and Latinx entrepreneurs we've worked with last year through our accelerator and, and elsewhere and thought it really meets um, and achieves several things that, that kind of fill a need in the, in the access to capital landscape. And so the way that works is we make an investment. Um, our funds focus on investing between fifty dollars to $200,000 at a time. And um, that investment gets repaid. Um, with a fixed percentage of revenue every month. So if we invest $100,000, we might get repaid 5 or 10% of a company's revenue every month until an agreed return cap has been hit. And so if revenue grows really fast, we'll get paid back faster. If revenue grows somewhat slower, it'll take it longer to get repaid. If COVID shuts your business down for a month, you're not behind on payments. You just pay whatever percent we agreed on of revenue. And if there's no revenue, there's no payment. Um, so we're sharing risk with entrepreneurs in that way. Um, and in addition to that money, we also provide access to capital, uh, sorry, access to coaching or consulting um, through uh, high quality business coach or consultant we work with through our accelerator. And then um, also we've built to bigger contracts um, and more customers.
So Yoni, I wanted to uh, touch on a couple of things you mentioned there, and that is this uh, this idea of revenue based financing. Uh, it makes a lot of sense because as revenue gr- revenues grow, you can the payment gets paid back sooner. I, I like the idea that uh, not that I want things to go into lockdown again, but fifteen percent of zero uh, is zero, and so it's not putting the the early stage companies, these startups, into a precarious position. Uh, does it also involve some form of equity? Is is Elevate Elevar and WePower taking an ownership or equity position in this, or is it truly a uh, a debt vehicle where it's 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 really looked at as a loan? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so we're doing both equity style and non-equity style. So we're open to just straight revenue-based investments with no equity component. Um, for in particular, businesses who are using this as an alternative to venture capital and um, are are on a pretty like super fast growth trajectory and scaling across the country, et cetera, really want an equity stake. Um, but we take a pretty small equity stake in the long run. It's it's really different from venture capital and traditional equity. And 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 that was another thing that like we in talking to entrepreneurs understood like what, if entrepreneurs had designed the capital landscape for themselves like they would have designed something, I think, more like this among many other options because we talked to entrepreneurs who said, I can get venture capital, but if I do that by the after Series B, I'm going to own less than half of my company. I'm going to, like, they're going to take so much ownership of my company and they want to pressure me to grow super fast, et cetera. And so we didn't want to put, on, we didn't want to, like, end up taking that much ownership away from entrepreneurs. And we also didn't see, like, uh, we didn't want that path for us making money to require entrepreneurs to sell their companies, which is typically like what, how venture capitalists see liquidity on their investment, um, unless a company goes public, which again, isn't the trajectory for most businesses in this country or the world. Um, and so the, the way we approach equity investing is an equity buyback model with a residual. Uh, I know that's a lot of jargon, but the way that works is like, maybe we take a 20% share in the company or a 30% share or something, but each month, when um, the business owner or the entrepreneur is paying us as part of this revenue share agreement, they're getting a, a portion of that equity back until by the end of the investment, they received almost all of their equity back. And the piece where the residual kicks in or what that means is we hold on to a small percentage of the company, a really small percent, like 1% of the company. So um, that's like upside protection for us and more jargon. But basically, if the company is really successful and grows a lot. We, we're along for the ride. We see a piece of that upside, um, but we're not taking control away from the entrepreneur. And, and they, um, in the long run, stay the, the owner of almost all of the company. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about it that way, because it's almost as if the, uh, the company, the ownership of the company or equity in the company is what's being collateralized, right? And uh, Yeah, as- exactly. As the risk is reduced and that uh, that that rev- that that capital is paid back, uh, then the then the collateral also comes off the table. Uh, you mentioned jargon a couple of times, and I know this you know this sector of you know investment and startups is, is fraught with jargon. Uh, I would say another sector that's fraught with jargon is community development, and you know WePower has a very uh, community focused community development lens by which it does a lot of the work. And I noticed in the announcement. I'll just quote it here. It says, part of the returns will be uh, democratically controlled by uh, community to resource their vision for themselves and their neighborhoods. Okay, help me sort that out. Uh, Are some of these returns going to be uh, not just 
held within WePower, but is there a larger community component to this? Yes, also so glad you asked about this. So um, this is, I think, like perhaps unique nationally. It's definitely very uncommon. I know of almost no one else doing um, work like this. But the way we like approach this work is that entrepreneurship and business more broadly is a pathway to generating wealth. Um, and uh, more broadly, we'd like to see community benefit when business thrives. And so for us, this is one like way of pursuing that. So um, when the fund, um, if the fund makes money, which of course we're working to make sure it does, um, there are no guarantees, uh, then after repaying external investors uh, with any funds left over, we'll split them evenly between um, reinvesting in additional Black and Latinx companies and um, sharing them with community members to decide how those funds are spent. And so the exact structure, governance structure, and decision-making mechanisms for that was something we're going to continue to work on over the years ahead because we're still talking about four, five, six, seven, possibly years from now. Um, but that's the, the core idea and the model and the vision we're committed to. Uh, we're just to reintroduce you, we are talking to uh, Yoni Bloomberg, who is with uh, WePower. And, and Yoni, I, this is not the status quo right? Like this is incredibly different. Uh, what models did you look at in order to start shaping what the, what the Elevate Elevar uh, capital plan will look like for WePower? Yeah, I, I have to start by giving a lot of credit to our founder, Charlie Cooksey, because she already developed a lot of the vision for this when I joined and started to work on the, the design of the fund. She said, okay, we want to invest in companies who want to make money doing it. And we want to share the returns of community to manage. Like we want, we want revenue streams independent of philanthropy, independent of public sources. We want like to tie the success of businesses to the community prospering. So at a high level, um, really like that's where we started. Um, thanks to her vision. And then on a more applied and practical level, we looked at organizations like the Boston Ujima project, which is doing really innovative, um, powerful work in Boston focused on, democratic, community-managed investing. Um, there are other funds that we're still learning about and, and trying to um, plan to reach out to and build relationships with, like the Real People's Fund in California. Um, and then there's a group that I think has recently ceased um, investment operations called NDVC that did a lot of pioneering work around this revenue-based investment model as an alternative to traditional venture capital. And so... Um, them plus the Greater Colorado Venture Fund were two groups that whose work they, they open sourced a lot of their work and their documents and their financial models, um, and that was really helpful for us in figuring out like could we do this? What would the terms have to be? How could it work, etc. And so as we're wrapping up here, I mean, we've I'm sure listeners are hearing about an additional 1.5 million dollar fund. Uh, listeners are interested in especially the the novelty and innovative nature of it. How do people get involved? Uh, how do people get plugged into WePower and some of the resources that are that are provided by by the organization? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, we're still largely operating remotely given the pandemic. Um, if we weren't, I'd say, like, let's meet up in person or come to one of our events. But in the meantime, check out our website at WePowerSTL.org. Um, feel free to reach out to me. It's just Yoni at WePowerSTL.org. You can read a lot more about our work on our website and then we're always happy to, to talk with whether it's entrepreneurs or people who are interested in supporting our work um, to, to see how we might work together or, or plug in. And if we're not the right fit at the right time, we, we know the ecosystem pretty well and we love to make intros to 
other other organizations who might be a good fit too. Are there particular businesses or sectors or industries that are better equipped for something like this? Yeah. So um, it's really important that we're clear that like this isn't a one size fits all model that's going to be perfect to invest in every business. It's absolutely not. Like this model is really best for companies that are going to be able to grow pretty quickly um, and, and see their revenue grow um, a lot within like a three or four year period and be able to use the capital to make some of that growth possible. Um, there, I think going back to that point about the capital landscape, we need other products still, lines of credit, other things for shorter term purposes, et cetera. All right, Yoni, thank you so much for joining us. Stick around. We have more Nothing Impossible coming up next. We're going to talk about beer right after this. The following program has been pre-recorded. St. Louis Innovation with Michael and Travis. Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Well, as we continue, a rising niche in the beer industry is the non-alcoholic scene. And joining us is Jeff Stevens, the founder of Wellbeing Brewing, which we've talked with him before, Travis. Uh, but they're expanding. They've got a new East Coast manufacturing facility, some new beers coming out. And, of course, the exercise industry is taking a look. We'll explain. But, uh, Jeff, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Thank you both for having me. So, Jeff, tell us, what's the latest with, with, what's, going, with what's going on? Yeah, what is it? Well, it's, it's good you asked that. Um, we, we, we opened a, a brew facility. We contract brew. So we, we partner with um, awesome craft brewers. That's how we did it in St. Louis. We worked with O'Fallon. They knew how to brew beer. We, we figured out how to take the alcohol out. We uh, found a partner in uh, Virginia Beach named New Realm. Uh, and their brewer is a guy named Mitch Steele, and he wrote the book on how to make IPAs. I mean, he literally, if you go to Amazon, uh, it's <laughs> Mitch Steele, how to make IPAs. So we just launched an IPA that he brewed, and the, the beer is called Going Places. Um, and it's all about a, you know, as the world's slowly opening up, although there's lots of hiccups with the world opening up, um, uh, hopefully the travel industry will come back. And, you know, if you're going places in life, this is the beer for you because, you know, it doesn't have alcohol in it, so it's not going to slow you down. So that's, that's our newest launch. It's a, it's a Mitch Steele brewed IPA. So it's exciting. And you are expanding your manufacturing. Tell us a little bit about that and, and the impetus behind this. It seems like there's a lot more attention, enthusiasm, momentum mm -hmm. in the N.A. industry. Yeah, it's, it's been great. I, I don't know, you know, everyone, the pandemic started and, and, you know, there was lots of stories of people drinking more. And, and, but I think there was a bigger trend of people examining how much they drank. And I, I do think even coming out of the pandemic, maybe people who were drinking too much during it, and not that we're out of it, but I think everybody is looking at how much they drink and just examining how, how does alcohol work in your life. Lots of people are coming to the conclusion that they are drinking too much, don't need as much of it, um, and, and finding alternatives. And we're stepping into that and saying, well, you can have just as much fun, have a great beer, go out and connect with friends, and you don't have to have all the, uh, you know, you don't, you're not hung over the next day. You don't have to have all the calories. Um, so all those things, I think, is in is really uh, happening and is a big trend and we've we've certainly ridden that wave uh, to success for sure. Well, I don't I don't think any have popped up in St. Louis yet, but uh, you know there are a number of these uh, sober bars that are starting yeah. to pop up in cities around the United States. Uh, there are a couple in Denver I, I know of. Um, mm -hmm. How much is this? Do you think this trend is tied to you know coming out of COVID or is this a, a longer term? trend that we're seeing in the community yeah no i think it i think 
yeah, COVID had 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 played a role maybe coming out of it, uh, either accelerated it uh, uh, now. But I do think this was a, a much larger societal trend of just overall health and wellness, and then just uh, uh, people looking at alcohol uh, for the first time in their lives. When I when I grew up in most of my most of my adult life, I don't think we we mindlessly drank, as I would say. I, you went out, and you just drank. I don't know if anyone. You know, I don't know if anyone looked at it on, on a use level, um, but I think that's changed. I think that's changed with all kinds of foods, with meats and with, you know, all kinds of things that are better, better for you. And alcohol is just one of those for sure. So I do think it's a bigger trend. When you talk about health and wellness, and we now recognize mental health's huge role in that spectrum. Yes. And, and so yes. talk us uh, through a little bit more about what's happening with well-being and four hands and the not-for-profit you're benefiting. That's that's a great, great question. So. Uh, there was this. There was a, a bunch of 500 brewers across the country made this uh, IPA for Mental Health Awareness Month this May. But none of them were non-alcoholic beers. They were all alcohol beers. And a lot of what this Hope for the Day organization does is uh, specifically help people in the restaurant uh, industry deal with their mental health issues and provide resources for that. And a lot of the mental health issues are uh, around drinking and alcohol and things like that. So. For us, it was an awesome collaboration that we did here in St. Louis uh, with this beer called a really uh, tasty tropical ale called Liquid Rain that we brewed with beforehand. And uh, uh, it was to raise awareness for Mental Health Month month in May, but also to provide uh, uh, industry support for people in the restaurant industry who were probably hit the hardest. You know, that is an industry that just got battered during the pandemic in so many different ways. Um, so it was it was a perfect time for us to jump in because these from the beginning, many of the people that that we employ, that we work with are all people that come from that industry that at some point quit drinking alcohol. And it real they've loved the industry and they don't want to leave the industry, but they just can't do the alcohol part anymore. So uh, it, it was really perfect for us to step in and make this awesome beer. Well, so give us an, an idea of I mean, there's always things changing. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we had a. a a guest on the show who was a futurist and I, I want to get into this place of mm-hmm. asking more of our guests like you know what yeah. what is next for for the beer industry especially on the na side of things well so that's interesting i i think here's what i think is next and it's and it's bubbling around and you've probably heard the term this idea of functional beverages uh but when you think of all the ingredients that people brew with every kind of flavor fruit uh chocolate coffee uh spice all this stuff you can with and then you turn that to all the things we can brew with on the healthy ingredient side from all the ferments and probiotics, prebiotics, electrolytes, uh, proteins, things that we can brew that make beer healthy. I think that is the next trend in beverages. And what's exciting is what we can do in the beer space because beer is this amazing base to brew these ferments into. So what I see the future is a lot of really functional, healthy beverages that have real, really high efficacy uh, in energy, in calm, in sleep, in better sex, in, in you know, dealing with anxiety, all kinds of things that you can find in, in your beverages, in your beers, uh, that, that I see as the future. So that's really fun. We're, we're right there, right at the cusp of that right now. So it's exciting. That's where I see us making our products and what we're, we're coming out with soon is some beverages in that space. There you go. Perfect reason to have a beer after your workout, right? That's right. Oh, completely. <laughs> and I love it. Yeah. Jeff. Hey, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. 
I worked on Michelob Ultra a long time ago, and I love that the brand idea of just this this thing, this workout beer. And and so for us to take the alcohol out, add electrolytes, it's it's really what you want when you get done working out. You're exactly right. Jeff Stevens of Wellbeing, thank you so much for joining us on Nothing Impossible. Uh, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on this edition of our informational journey into St. Louis technology, startups, innovation, the future, Travis. And the future is even next week. People should come back and listen for more. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. Download the podcast on the Odyssey app. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.